You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, Broadway's podcast where we present essential conversations with a curated roster of the best, most important, and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. We took our name from the title of a 1938 play by Kaufman and Hart that has since become a loving nickname for Broadway itself, always deemed on the verge of decline yet always bouncing back, The Fabulous Invalid. I'm theater savant Jamie Dumont. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with StageLeft.NYC and StageLeft, the podcast. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. Well, we are back with our season-long theme of our favorite things, but this time it's a little (laughs) Jamie-centric. That's right. Uh, Well, that's because, you know, if you know Jamie, you know that he loves a list. And this week is no exception. As I think I've mentioned before on this, or maybe you mentioned it, Jamie, like right when we first met, Jamie (laughs) commanded me to make a list of my my top favorite uh, overtures of all time. Well, I love a list and I love a test. I'm sort of the opposite. I have such a hard time ranking things. So um, I, I put it together, though, and I think for the most part, you liked it. I did. I loved it. It it endeared me to you. And the fact that you like dropped everything and did it right away, it came back pretty quickly. I was impressed by. I will say with the exception of one overture, it's a pretty great list. But I don't want to start a fight with you now. Yeah, let's let's not uh, start off on the wrong foot. Um, But in keeping uh, with Jamie's love of lists, uh, this week we decided to dive into one um, that Jamie posted on Twitter that got us talking. And I'm sure it got some folks on Twitter talking as well. Jamie, what is that list? I'm so glad you asked. What I posted on Twitter, I'll start this way, was my top 10 Broadway dance numbers of all time, right? Which was a response to an exchange that I had read debating whether or not Rich Man's Frug was in the top 10 of all-time great dance numbers. And maybe moving forward, we should call them production numbers. Maybe that's maybe that's a better kind of way to put it. So Naturally, I responded to that exchange that I can't commit to any top 10 list, but Frug would be on it. And then like less than an hour later, I had actually committed and posted my own list. (laughs) Yeah, well, of course. (laughs) Um, Now we're calling this episode Showstoppers. And that term, I guess, you know, might be a little misleading or folks might have different ideas of, of what a showstopper is. So Jamie, why don't you share what your definition of a showstopper is? What I'm talking about here is what I said a moment ago, which is production number. I'm not referring to showstoppers in the sense of like Rose's turn or, and I'm telling you I'm not going. That's a completely different list and arguably a harder list to create. This is a list celebrating some of the best choreography on Broadway. And Mm. so by that, I mean, we're going to be looking at the work of the choreographer and in some cases in one specific case, the choreographer and performer, and then, of course, also the director. Yeah, I think what we're going to discover is, you know, uh, analyzing showstoppers really drives home the point that, like, musical theater is a collaborative art form. Like, the top top word is collaboration, 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 collaboration. And there's so many hidden sort of heroes of a lot of these songs and moments that we love, um, which I'm really excited to dive into. So should we get into our, into our top ten? Absolutely. 
But before we get into the top 10, I would like to discuss my 11, because I think my 11 is important. And you know, I'm always trying to get in a few more. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'm surprised you're not starting with your number 12. Right. I would start with 15 if you'd let me. Right. Well, exactly. But the reason I'm starting with 11 is because when I posted this list on Twitter uh, last week, there was a bit of controversy, which we'll address throughout the rest of the show. But right (laughs) off the bat, there was controversy with my number 10. A lot of people reacted to it. And, And so I thought I should, I will defend that in a moment, but I thought I should tell you what my 11 is, which... It's a tie, of course. And it's <laughs> so it is your 12. Yes. <laughs> so sneaky. I know. I know. I'm such a jerk. Who's that woman from Follies and Glory from Pippin, but specifically the Manson Trio, which oh, is yeah. the which is the three-person one-minute moment. Yeah. Sort of in kind of at the end of Glory, which was famously used as the television commercial, which sort of changed not only the the whole look of, uh, or changed the, the, the fate of Pippin, but it also changed the way we market Broadway shows. But if you want to hear more about that, I would suggest that you listen to our Fosse Verdon episode, right, our two-parter, because right. we dig into that pretty deeply there. Okay, so you've gotten that off your chest. Yes, 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 yes. Because a lot of people came at me because everybody, I guess, knows that I'm a fan of Follies. And people were surprised. And Pippin, and Pippin. You're like well, the biggest Pippin fan, you know? I, I am. I, I am. And, and and then I will also say that my husband, who came after me before anybody else did, because I shared this <laughs> That's list with him. Yeah. That's true love. That's true It's true something. He couldn't believe that I didn't have, and this, I'm going to, I'm going to put this flaw up there right at the top oh, that Susan okay. Stroman isn't on this list. And oh, so I guess, mm-hmm. I guess technically now I wrote 12, but since you pointed <laughs> out that I can't have a tie, my 13, yeah. my lucky 13 would be Susan Stroman. And it would probably, for me, it would be slap that bass from crazy for you. But I, there's an argument to be made that I've got rhythm where they build the houses, but yeah. I digress. And the other thing I want to say about this list, and this was really the reason why I didn't put Who's That Woman in my top 10. All of these are production numbers that I've seen the original choreography live on stage, either in the original production or recreated in a revival or some other place. And I've never seen Michael Bennett's actual choreography for Who's That Woman. It's never done in any of the revivals. They do moments of it, but I've never, and you know, the YouTube video, that particular moment is very hard to see. So I feel like I've never really seen Michael Bennett's Who's That Woman. It's a, it's something that lives in myth. Um, all right. Are you ready, Robert? Let's do it. Let's dig in. All right. How much time have we wasted just on was my- a lot of a lot of prefatory, uh, you know, just on uh, material 13, on 12, yeah. and 11. Okay. All well, right. The controversial number 10 that I re- oh. alluded to a moment ago is the title number MAME from MAME. How is that controversial? Well, I, you know, okay, so uh, some people were like, why isn't it Hello Dolly? As we learned, 
on our Jerry Herman deep dive recently from Andy Einhorn. The reason that Hello Dolly works so much as a number is less about the choreography and more about the actual song. It's more about the repetition of the chorus and the build of that song. And of course, the lady always helps and the coming down the staircase and all of that works that number up. But really, it's the repetition of that chorus over and over again that is the big release of that moment. Whereas yeah. with Mame, the absolute opposite is true. With Mame, the song itself has lots of choruses and lots of different lyrics, and it's it's and some of them are controversial, right? But that dance is really extraordinary. And similarly, the way Hello Dolly is a slow build and repetition. The choreography is similar in the sense that it starts off with just lots of swaying back and forth, and then the swaying leads to some kicks, and then the kicks get higher and higher, and as the number goes on, it goes from being sort of a slow, controlled movements uh, to lots of galloping, lots of circular motion, and it's really like by the time they come to the end. You are sold. I mean, I agree a hundred percent. You know, specifically about the way that Anna White, you know, builds that number. I mean, it's genius, right? It's like it's classic choreography. It's how you do a showstopper. But to to Andy Einhorn's point about Hello Dolly, which we talked about in our Jerry Herman show, you know, I think the other thing about that song and that makes it so you know powerful and such a showstopper in its own right in that show is that the whole show is sort of building towards that moment. Correct. Whereas Mame. The whole show isn't building towards this number. It's just a really great number, right? And and I actually do believe, you know, I think that that as a song, Mame is a better song. And you know, the choreography is obviously essential, right? And and you know, I I'm hoping someday we get a revival so we can see it live on stage again. But you wouldn't have such a great, you know, production number without a great song underneath it. And it's amazing thinking about the fact that. Uh, Jerry did not want to write this song, right? After the success of Hello, Dolly, he was like, I, I can't write another title song. And th- it was the last song he wrote for the show, which is hard to believe because it's so iconic and it's the first song you hear in the overture. Uh, but producer uh, Bobby Fryer went to his apartment and was like, okay, Jerry, we're not telling you you have to do this, but on behalf of the producers, we really, really want you to do this. And he left. Jerry sat back at his piano and was like, I have no idea. What am I going to do? And then he thought, okay, why don't I do sort of a spoof of, of the South? And then he heard in his head banjos. And from there, it was 3 o'clock. Bobby Fryer left his house at 3 o'clock. At 4.15, he called him up and said, I've written the song. But I think what's really important, you know, just to defend the song is I know that people wring their hands about the lyrics and, you know, is it glorifying the South? It's absolutely not doing that. 
and and it's an exuberant dance number of course and it's a celebration of this woman but it's also a spoof and jerry wrote it as a spoof it's supposed to be over the top he's conjuring all these images you know like the bougainvillea turning purple at the mention of your name and you know all that stuff and it's it's over the top and it's supposed to be over the top and that's what makes it so great i mean jerry herman was a gay jew from new york right? He was not some right-wing shill. So obviously he's not meaning to literally celebrate the Confederacy with this song. You know, it's it's supposed to be silly. And it is silly, but it's also so captivating. I think it's also aided by 22 people on stage. Uh, I think yeah. you have 12 people sing. You have more singers singing that song than actually dancing. I, I looked, oh, there's a great video. Mm-hmm. There's two great, there's two great videos of this production number. You can watch Angela Lansbury in the 83 revival, but even better is Ginger Rogers who played Mame on the West end. There's a great recording of her doing that number. And I sat there and kept hitting pause, counting everyone. <laughs> and there are, there are 12, cause you know, you can't do that choreography and really sing to the level that Jerry Herman's right. song requires. So there's 12 people who do slight dancing, but mostly are off singing and then 10 dancers dancing. I will say one other thing about this video, the Ginger Rogers, that's great. At one point she has a cane, right? Mane's in a top hat and a cane. She sticks her cane into the floor of the stage and it stands upright so that she can go and do her high kicks, which is fabulous. (laughs) And then as we discussed on our Jerry Herman episode, a la Donald Pippen, uh, Andy Einhorn told us that the, the key to these songs really working is that you have one soprano voice, right? That's the, right. That's yeah. the voice. And in this production, that voice was Julia McKenzie, who would go on yeah. to become a great stage star in her own right. And you can see her yeah. on the video. She's very clearly there swaying with her parasol <laughs> and singing. So it's a fabulous number. I, I agree with everything you said about the song itself. Uh, yeah. uh, without a question, it's the best title number i think ever written or choreographed yeah i i think i'd have to agree and you know shout out i think as we go along we're going to discover that you know jerry herman wrote the melody which was you know is of course iconic and fabulous but of course you know the dance break is is the work of a dance arranger and an orchestrator and here you know that was philip lang the orchestrator and roger adams who did the dance arrangements um and then of course aided by donald pippins incredible vocal arrangements. It all comes together to make just an amazing number. The one thing I want to say, you know, the last thing I want to say about this number is in the costuming of it, which I think is so brilliant, it's sort of the inverse of Hello, Dolly, the title number, right? In that number, she's in the red dress and all the waiters are in black as it was originally done. And in this number, she's in black, Mame is in black, and all of the men are in red. Uh, And I thought that was just such an interesting, whether it was intentional or not, such a really clever way of saying, okay, this is not Hello, Dolly. We're going to do something different. So we'll just flip the costume colors, you know? And the women are in peach with parasols. Yes. Well, you have to do Georgia peach. There you go. Come on, you've got to do it. So in summary, Mame, it's about a great song, Swaying, circular motion, a little galloping, high kicks, and most importantly, get your leading lady dancing, right? Because that's the thrill. And Um, it's great because she can dance that number because she doesn't have to sing it. Correct. So she gets to really go all out. And it's the end of act one. So, you know, after that, you get to, you know, hang out in your dressing room and, you know, relax. (laughs) Moving on to number nine, we have 42nd Street from 42nd Street. That is the late, great Gower Champion. 
director and choreographer, uh, which we'll see a lot of as we as we go through this. We'll we'll see a lot of one person doing both tasks. I think it'll come as no surprise to anybody who listened to our our flops and hits that Forty Second Street, particularly that well the show, but also this title number is. Um, I think our champion's masterpiece, hands down. I think it's literally its own, and I'm using literally correctly, its own three-act play in a show within a show, which makes it within a show. Um, right. <laughs> we've spent a fair amount of time on this number uh, in our hits episode, as I mentioned. Uh, I, I de- we deconstructed it a little bit, so I don't want to dwell uh, on it for too long, but I do want to say that what I think I love about this number the most and why I think it's Gower's masterpiece and why I think it works so beautifully and people don't understand all the time why it works so beautifully is all the stories that it's telling simultaneously, right? So it parallels the story you've been watching all night, which is that of a young hoofer trying to make it on Broadway. Then it tells the classic boy meets girl story with our hoofer who meets a, a serviceman and they fall in love through dance. And then that serviceman dies, right? He gets shot mistakenly because in the original, in Gower's version, which it's not usually done this way any longer, which is a shame, there's a cat burglar or a burglar that's dancing throughout the scene and he's taking people's purses and necklaces and whatnot. And the serviceman gets shot where the police are trying to catch the burglar and he dies. And what I love about that is that it also plays to the seamy underside of New York City, right? So it and and let's not forget that 42nd Street takes place during the Depression, which was a pretty yeah. terrible time, right? And we forget these things sort of because it's such a beautiful, glossy, feel-good show, but it really does reflect the sort of corrupt, dark, dirty underbelly of New York, which has been absent all evening because everything's been, you know, puffy and 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 wonderful. So I think that is really at the core of this number, what makes it so brilliant. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There's just so much going on, you know, without you even realizing it, right? It's operating somewhat subliminally. And that's what the greatest production numbers do. And I agree. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. You know, it's a full ballet and story within the show. It sort of harkens back to the tradition of On Your Toes, you know, the slaughter on 10th Avenue in 1936, George Balanchine's ballet, which was a landmark moment in musical theater to... Um, tell a story with dance within a musical that hadn't really been done before. And this is doing exactly that, right? And it's even, you know, kind of in the same place dramaturgically uh, yeah, <laughs> towards the end of act two, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? But a couple things strike me with this number upon watching it again. First of all, is just how absolutely glorious it is to witness tap dancing. It's so essential. It's It's like in the DNA of the American musical comedy. I always want every season, I want new tap on Broadway. I'm sad when there is no tap on Broadway, like justice for tap. Um, I'm, so watching it, just <laughs> seeing this extraordinary, you know, ensemble of, of dancers tap dancing to Gower Champion's incredible choreography, it's just thrilling. There's, no, there's nothing like tap. And that show is full of tap dance, obviously. It's a tap forward show. <laughs> So that's stunning. And then just watching the original production 
you know, it's the same creative team um, of designers who uh, did a chorus line. Uh, and Theoni Aldridge's costumes are so stunning because they're not these like wimpy pastels. They're these really rich colors, which feel more true to the period, even if they aren't. I mean, I'm not an expert on costuming, um, but in subsequent productions, um, I feel like the colors have become so much more muted and, and the, and the shows become glossier. Um, but to see that original, um, I'm just struck by the, the depth of the hues on stage, which just, I don't know. They add a certain oh, drama to it. I, you're absolutely right. And, and you, you tapped in on something that I think is really important to I know. Tapped which in, is, I tapped in. Ah, huh? uh, there you go. There you go. Which is it with Theoni's original costumes, particularly in the 42nd street, there's every color in the rainbow, right? Yeah. But in, but the way they do it now, everybody's sort of in the same hue as you mentioned and and i think that's that's part of what makes this number so spectacular is all of the individual stories that are being told both through dance and through costuming right it's so magnificent it all it all come it all blends together to make such a successful showstopper although so i i'm gonna introduce a note of drama to uh category number nine okay and that is in my mind, I mean, 42nd Street, the ballet, you know, whatever, however, however you want to call it, is a phenomenal number. But for my money, I kind of think that Lullaby of Broadway is more of a showstopper in terms of like just the wow factor of it. And it's interesting in watching them again, the same move that is done at the end of Lullaby of Broadway with the arms up and the toe touching mm-hmm. is at the end of 42nd Street. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, it's obviously intentional. I, I thought that was an interesting through line uh, in terms of the dance and the movement. I tend to perhaps fall more on the side of Lullaby of Broadway, which is what they performed at the Tony Awards. Right. Well, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think, again, this is, these are, <laughs> these are, this is just my, my little humble list and uh, there's no right or wrong answer. I will say, as you just referenced, you can see Lullaby of Broadway on YouTube from the Tony performance. Yeah. And you can also catch the original Gower champion choreography of 42nd Street. There's a wonderful video of the London cast at the Theatre Drury Lane. It might be for the Olivier's. I'm not exactly sure what the recording is, but it's a very good copy. And fun little fact, you can see one of the hoofers, Catherine Zeta-Jones, um, who's <laughs> funnily enough wearing a wig that looks a lot like her uh, Velma Kelly wig from Chicago a few years later. And she would go on to be a Peggy Sawyer, I think on the West End and in Australia but I could be wrong about that. But you can check it out because as I mentioned at the beginning of this, the version that's normally done is the wonderful version from the 2001 revival with a big staircase. And that's what I think people think of when they think of that number. The Randy Skinner. And that's not the number that I'm talking about. That's its own thing and it's wonderful in its own right, but it's not, it's not, it's not my number nine. (laughs) All All right. right. So how about your number eight? Well, you can't sit Jamie Dumont and Rob Russo down. I'm I'm bringing you into my list now, whether you like it or not, to do a list show and not have something from Fiddler on the Roof on that list, oh, yeah. right? It's mm-hmm. just, it's never going to happen. 
Um, <laughs> so we are now at the fiddler on the roof portion of our show. And that, of course, is my number eight, which is the wedding dance, um, mm. specifically the bottle dance. But that whole wedding sequence is magnificent. And I, I'm also going to throw in sunrise, sunset, because that's how the whole thing starts. But the bottle dance is just so crazy. And who didn't? the first time they saw it, think to themselves, how do those bottles stay up there? Are they like Velcroed yeah. in? They're not. They're not. That is just precision dancing. And I would imagine the bottles are weighted on the bottom. I would imagine there's something in there that keeps them weighted. Yeah. So this is, of course, um, an iconic dance by Jerome Robbins, who, you know, absolute genius of the American theater. And it's it's amazing to dig into the history of, of, of Fiddler because the show meant so much to its creators in that it was, you know, dramatizing a milieu that uh, meant a lot to them personally. And that is, you know, a Jewish community in a Russian, um, you know, shtetl at the turn of the century. And uh, Robbins's own father was born in a shtetl in Russia, you know, in the, in the late 19th century. So this was very personal for him. And he said, he was very open about it as they were creating the show that he wanted to restore what in his mind was a lost culture and to put it on stage and to give it life, quote, for at least 25 years. And I think he's certainly, uh, you know, done more uh, than that uh, in terms of the, lo the longevity and the cultural impact of the show. But the bottle dance itself was inspired by an actual dance that Robbins saw. So he and his assistant, uh, while they were researching the show, you know, went around the, the Hasidic community of New York uh, City uh, to observe different, um, you know, uh, rituals and, and events. And at a wedding they were at, they saw a, a Jewish comedian do a dance where he balanced a wine bottle on his head. And Richard Altman, who is Robbins' assistant at the time, said that he watched it with hypnotic absorption. And of course, you know, would go on to create uh, it wasn't just one uh, one guy with a bottle on his head. It was a whole ensemble of a whole chorus line of of men with bottles on their heads with that dance. And it was the last thing that was choreographed for the show. It was sort of the last touch that uh, that they put into it. And of course, is just a showstopper. It is. It's it's a thrilling number in in a show that has so many thrilling numbers and. Again, someone might come after me and say it should be uh, tradition or it should be if I were a rich man. Well, actually, if I were a rich man is more along the lines of Rose's turn or one of those. Right, sure. But, yeah. but to your point, it's really funny when you put in bottle dance from Fiddler on the Roof into the Google machine, the first thing that comes up is, is it real? <laughs> yeah, well, it's so genius. I mean, because that tension right. that it creates as you're watching it pulls the entire audience in. And what you probably don't realize as you're watching this number is that your eyes are glued on those bottles, but so are, you know, 2,000 other eyes at the same right. time. Right. And a 1,000 hearts are beating just as fast as yours. It, are those bottles going to fall, right? So it's this moment of collective energy that you can't find anywhere other than in the musical theater.
it's also sort of the shift in the evening, right? Because right. right after those bottles come off those gentlemen's heads and that number finishes, the whole show turns, right? Everything changes. Yeah. It's a very dramatic end of the first act that comes after, right after that. So it really is, it, it's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about it until you just said it with the tension building of, of that moment, right. that tension you then carry through the rest of the show with you. And it's the genius of Jerome Robbins as a, as a, someone who had a keen eye for drama, which is the pogrom that you witness at the end of act one is as effective because it comes after the sort of ecstatic high of that dance number. So in order to, in order to sort of plumb the depths of that tragedy, he sets up the highest, you know, celebratory, you know, moment that you could, which is this, this wedding dance, the whole sequence. And you don't get the, the, the punch of the low without the, you know, the joy of the high to the same degree. I mean, obviously you would have it because the, the events speak for themselves, but uh, the way it's structured dramatically and then aided, aided through the choreography as a storytelling element, as a dramaturgical element. It's just brilliant. I'm surprised we haven't done an entire show on Fiddler on the Roof yet. I know, right? Um, <laughs> in it, a way we have though, you know, we've kept it throughout three out. seasons of, yeah. uh, you know, 90 episodes, right? There's a little Fiddler and everything. There really is. We can't go too far without talking about what I think is probably the greatest musical ever and will never be repeated uh, again, but that's yeah, a different yeah. list for a different show. Now I think we should get to my number seven. We have finally reached Mr. Fosse, Steam yes. Heat from Pajama Game, Bob Fosse's 1954 masterpiece. We could spend a whole hour just on this number alone. I will say, uh, according to Martin Gottfried and his wonderful book on Bob Fosse, George Abbott had asked Fosse to stage Steam Heat and wanted it sort of in the manner that would be appropriate to the amateur night that's happening in the pajama factory at that moment in the show. And so he said, you know, do something small which is a quote. And so Bob did everything small, everything minimal. I mean, it is, you can argue that this is the beginning of everything Fosse would do from that moment on. Interestingly, in New Haven, Abbott cut the number from the show, at which I, 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 I mean, can you imagine if this number had not <laughs> did not exist. But of course, uh, it was Jerome Robbins who lobbied yep. to have it put back into the show. There are two wonderful ways you can watch it. The The film captures uh, Carol Haney. Uh, it was originally done on Broadway. It was Carol Haney, Peter Gennaro, who would obviously go on to quite a successful career, and then Buzz Miller, who was a terrific dancer at the time. Carol Haney recreates it in the film. I don't know if Peter Gennaro and Buzz Miller are in the film. I, I, I don't think that they are. Then, of course, it was done in Fosse many years later, and that's available as well on DVD and on the YouTube, and both both really good versions. It's hard to argue that this is not a showstopper. I mean, it's like the definition of a showstopper, and the brilliance of it, of course, is that it arrives at the top of Act 2. Um, it sort of does the same thing that Too Darn Hot does in Kiss Me Kate, or even the Clambake in Carousel. You know, it's sort of like welcoming the audience back into the show through just a great number, right? That really has nothing to do with the show at all. And that's what's so, Does it that's why Abbott, well, that's why Abbott wanted it cut in New Haven, right? Because he felt like this has nothing to do with the characters. It doesn't advance the plot. It doesn't aid the story. It's just a specialty number, you know? And, and that's probably why it did end up marking the formal emergence of Fosse as a choreographer. I mean, this was his first Broadway gig. 
you know, Jerome Robbins was co-directing with, with George Abbott. And, you know, Jerome Robbins ended up actually doing a lot of the choreography for uh, the pajama game. He would restage things that Fosse had done. And they had, a, you know, a bit of a, um, you know, I think they had a, a collegial uh, relationship, but, you know, it was a little tense, right? Fosse had something to prove with the pajama game. And this is what he ended up producing, right? This number, which uh, if you if you isolate any one of the elements of it, whether it's, you know, the costuming, right? The whole Charlie Chaplin look with the bowler hats and the the, the black pants and the, the white socks and all that. You know, the clear influence of uh, Jack Cole, who was sort of his mentor, and his own sort of hat work and knee work. I mean, that's all quintessential Bob Fosse. Everything you need to know about Bob Fosse as an auteur, as a creator, is in that number. And Kevin Winkler, who wrote a great book called Big Deal, uh, makes the argument that in one form or another, Steam Heat would reappear in every single Fosse show, right? It's who's got the pain. It's I gotcha. It's the Manson Trio. It's the Hot Honey Rag. It's from the edge, from dancing, right? That sort of tight duo or trio precision dancing that builds to an ecstatic explosion that starts off very small. There's, it's all characterized by restraint. All of the movements are so specific, so small, and before you know it, you're like, holy shit, what is happening in front of me? This is unbelievable. How did I get from here to there? And that is the genius of Fosse. They told me to pour some more oil in the burner. They told me to pour some more oil in the burner. They told me to pour some more oil in the burner. But that don't do no good. Coal in the boiler. We spoke to Jane Lanier, who danced it in Fosse on Broadway, yeah. uh, about trying to catch the hat, right? There's a very famous right. thing where they flip the hat at. Uh, so you can listen to Jane talk about that. But I always love that because, you know, it looks so easy flipping a hat, but I, I yep. there's no way I would be able to do it. That's for sure. Well, what... I think what Jane said to us was, it looks so easy until you try to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And, and then you realize it's really hard. You know, and I actually, there's a portion of the song where they sort of shuffle across the stage. Yeah. And you have to watch their feet because the articulation of their feet as they move is exactly what Jane was talking to us about, which is that Fosse would isolate multiple body parts at the same time. So if you watch right. those, your, your feet are going in two different directions, your legs are doing something, your arms are doing something, your shoulders are doing something, and your head is doing something all at the same time. And it's like, ah, how do you do that? And that's what makes it so effective. Steam Heat, of course, would go on to make a star out of Shirley MacLaine, who was Carol Haney's understudy. Uh, there was a producer from Hollywood in to see Carol Haney, actually. She was out that night. MacLaine knocked his socks off. She got a movie deal out of it. Her first film was Alfred Hitchcock's comedy, The Trouble with Harry. But that incident, that like star overnight thing, is something that would be referenced over and over again in film and television and in theater some 20 years later in Applause, which was a musical version of All About Eve. They would reference this in the second act, Showstopper, She's No Longer a Gypsy. So it, you know, I, I just love that little 
thing about it. And then I, I just also have to say, not really related to Steam Heat, but Carol Haney would go on to choreograph my beloved flower drum song. Number six. Yes. Technically, it's a tie. And I will say... <laughs> In, but we're not going to talk about it, really. In my list on Twitter, the one sort of mistake that I made was my number six was the prologue from West Side Story. And as soon as I hit send and put it into the world, I was like, wait, I meant to write Dance at the Gym. Why did I write prologue? Now, I think the prologue is brilliant, and I think it's a showstopper. And I think it, you know, it, 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 that opening of that show and so much about that show changed the face of theater. But if you're talking about just wow factors and my favorite moment in that show, the dance at the gym, hands down, is a thrilling. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it right now. And what's amazing to think is that, you know, it, it, in a way, it almost didn't happen because um, Jerome Robbins felt like he was juggling too much with this project, you know, the creation of West Side Story, that when Hal Prince came on to produce it, he was not the original producer, Jerome Robbins said to him, okay, I'm just going to direct and I want my friend Herbert Ross to choreograph it. And, yeah. you know, Herbert Ross was, was a, a fellow performer. They had done, you know, shows in the Poconos together. He would go on to, you know, choreograph some stuff, but he was not Jerome Robbins. And, and Hal Prince, uh, just, you know, the genius Hal Prince sat back and said, okay, well, if you're not going to choreograph the show, I'm not going to produce it. <laughs> and so Robbins agreed that, okay, they, cause they were desperate for money. You know, they, the, 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 the financial backing of the show had fallen through and his demand was that he got eight weeks of rehearsal so that he would have enough time to do it. Typically you had four and, uh, Prince acquiesced. He, you know, he knew what his artists needed and what Jerome Robbins needed was time. So he gave him that time and thank God he did because it's hard to imagine a more iconic suite of um, of dances than what you get with West Side Story. I would actually argue for a four-way tie. Um, I would throw in America and Cool because why not? If we're doing ties, you know, the, all, all of those moments to me are showstoppers. I don't disagree with that. I knew you were going to throw Cool in there and I, and I think <laughs> America as well. I, I think it's interesting though when you, you referred to dance at the gym as a suite of dances, right? Which I think is important to just call out because I think most people remember Mambo because that's the right. big thing, but there is a whole dance before that, right? The, the right. you know, Maria twirls, the lights do their thing, streamers come down, and then the kids come from both sides, both wings, right? Across yeah. the stage in this sort yeah. of slopey, a wonderful movement. It You can see it. It's on YouTube. It's in the film. The whole thing is so incredible, but I think people forget how it actually begins. And, and so Suite of Dances is a perfect, I think, way to describe it. Yeah. And thinking about, you know, sort of why that whole sequence and why the whole show, frankly, is so successful and why it really lands harkens back to a point I made at the top of the show, which is that, you know, it's not just the choreography. It's not just the music. It's the two together. And it's the, the synthesis of all of the elements that come to the fore in, in a musical. And what's unique about this show, among all of the showstoppers that we're going to talk about, is that, you know, Leonard Bernstein uh, wrote all the music, right? So often the moments that we love, these show-stopping moments, um, are, are sequences that were 
written by a dance arranger or an orchestrator, but every single second of this score, right, is is pure Bernstein, and and he even orchestrated um, the show, right, which is unique. It's rare, you know, you don't see a composer doing orchestrations all that often. So it's so much of his DNA, and and, and I agree. My favorite part of the dance of the gym is actually the top of the dance which is that whole transition from the prior scene into them coming out of the wings. And that, I don't, I don't even know what it's called, but before you actually get to the formal part, which is on the cast album, you know, they didn't record that, that first dance sequence in the original cast album um, at the top, you know, the, the, the first portion of it. It is so fast and athletic and like sexy, right? I mean, you, 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 you sense it's palpable that these kids are not only like downtrodden and like angry and have a lot of issues, they're also horny, right? And you like, it is, right. it is yeah. sexy. But even in the 2020 revival, where you had uh, Ana Teresa de Kiersmacher re-choreographing, right? Daring to, to re-choreograph the number, it still, for me, was the greatest showstopper in the show. I think because... At its base, you have that music to work with. And I feel like any choreographer who is, you know, a really good choreographer could do something great to that music. Um, also, you know, just the, the, the where, it, where it lands and what it means, you know, to the drama of the piece. All that said, the original is just, you know, it's perfect. I knew you were going to work in the 2020 revival. I was just wondering uh, you have to. how it would I, be. I was but, obsessed. I was well, obsessed. Yeah. you have to. <laughs> but yes, no, I agree. We did a whole show on it. I, I, uh, yeah, yeah, we did. Well, we did a show on we did, we did a whole show on West Side Story because again, West Side Story <laughs> is an incredible piece of theater, and you know, horny teenagers. Who wasn't a horny teenager? Right? Um, <laughs> speaking of horny, <laughs> that we note. are on <laughs> that note. We are at number five, which is. The Dream Ballet from Oklahoma, or as it's properly called, Lori Makes Up Her Mind. Choreographed by the legendary Agnes DeMille. The director of the show was Ruben Mamoulian. I don't know how many people know that. Obviously, Oklahoma was a landmark show. It's um, oftentimes called the first musical of the modern age. I don't think that's accurate. I think people are forgetting about Porgy and Bess and Showboat, but that's a different conversation. The ballet from Oklahoma is I think one of the most extraordinary things ever and 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 I feel like it gets a bum rap because so many high schools try to do it it's done so yeah. badly in so many different ways but if you watch and it's also unfortunate because the film version which is a great version of the ballet is also a bit expanded even though it was even though Agnes DeMille came and did her choreography for the film it's 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 made bigger right because of Hollywood and there's more dancers and there's scenery and things that aren't in the original production so i would say if you're at all interested in checking out the dream ballet in its original form on youtube there is a terrific restoration project of Oklahoma. And it's a really interesting, it's a college, I can't remember the name of it. Um, University of North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston-Salem. Thank you, Rob. I knew you would have that at the ready. Um, and what they did was they, they did a production of Oklahoma that recreated the letter for letter 
costume for costume, note for note, step for step, all of it, the original production. And it's really interesting. It's really fascinating from a scholarly standpoint, just how bright that show was, how vivid the colors were, how different shows were then as what we're used to now, just in terms of literally everything. But the ballet is there in its entirety, all whatever, 14 minutes of it or 16, 17 minutes of it, whatever it is. And it's, it's, it's magnificent. It's, it's combines everything that you need to know about the characters. It talks about their struggles. It talks about their fears. It talks about their dreams. It advances the story. It tells you more information about Lori and Curly and Jed, who are obviously the central figures of the show. Um, It's got horny women in it. It's got ladies of the (laughs) night. Who doesn't like that? It's got horny cowboys. It's really a magnificent piece of theater. And it marked the emergence of Agnes DeMille as a force in the American theater. It's pretty incredible. You know, the producers of the show saw her do her piece Rodeo for the the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo in 1942, uh, which was a suite of Aaron Copeland music that she had done with a Western theme and thought, oh, she should do Oklahoma. And R&H, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, they were not sold on the idea. And, And initially, you know, it took a while for her to sort of get integrated into the team. But the word I just used, integrated, is is the key thing because, you know, Hammerstein would later opine that with Oklahoma, you know, the choreographer for the first time became a true collaborator with the author and the composer, uh, which was groundbreaking, right? She, She didn't just add a little flourish here or there or enhance one or two scenes. She helped build, to quote Oscar, the very bone and muscle of the story. Oscar had an idea for it. He wanted like more of a circus theme. It was going to be a lighthearted ballet, right? And and in the original uh, uh, notes for the show, he literally writes that little description that it's going to be lighthearted. And then he hand wrote, take it, Agnes. And she took it and she made it, you know, she added all of the dark sexuality and the danger, you know, as Laurie is torn between Curly and Judd. And she turned the dream into a nightmare. And that was her, you know, her great epiphany, right, Uh, of using this device um, to explore the inner psychology of a character. That had never been done before, right? So 1936, On Your Toes, I mentioned earlier, Slaughter and Tenth Avenue, that was the first ballet. But that that had nothing to do with character development. It was just, you know, it was a story within the story, but it had nothing to do with actually developing the characters. Here, her innovation was to use the ballet as a device to explore the psychology of a character. And that, you know, again, had never been done before. And what I find just absolutely amazing is that Richard Rogers was not involved in the writing of the Dream Ballet, right? He literally left it to DeMille and the orchestrator, Robert Russell Bennett, to create the ballet. He had written all the melodies and he said, fine, take my melodies and use them. So she and, and Robert Russell Bennett went through the score and pulled out the melodic moments that they liked or that had to do with the characters. And he constructed the ballet. Richard Rogers did 
nothing. Not to crap on Richard Rodgers. He wrote the melodies. He gave the, the source material for the ballet, much like Michael Bennett would construct the, the opening of Follies. The, the prologue of Follies through you know pieces of Sondheim's music, and Sondheim wasn't really involved in that. Uh, the same thing happened in 1943 with the creation of this ballet, and it's really incredible. I, I have to agree with you. It is, it's a showstopper. It's underappreciated as a showstopper, probably because it is done wrong or, or poorly so often. But that 2011 video from the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, I really encourage you to watch it because it's absolutely stunning. Uh, it uses the device of having the dancing lorry and the dancing curly, which isn't always done, uh, which is what what Agnes DeMille had opted to do to have a real, you know, strong uh, set of dancers play the characters for this portion. And the part that just struck me and like floored me was at the end, frankly, there's a final silhouette of of Judd holding up. Uh, Laurie, and it's a red background, and you see the the shadow. And then she wakes up from the dream, and Judd is standing there, and he says, "Wake up, Laurie! Time to start for the party." And it—I mean, I, I don't know a more dramatically effective moment in all of musical theater. Well, Agnes DeMille would go on, you know, in addition to, to Carousel, um, you know, she she directed uh, Allegro and, and, and also did the, the choreography. Brigadoon in 1947, she won the first uh, Tony Award for choreography for Brigadoon. Um, Jonathan Prefer Blondes, Paint Your Wagon, 110 in the Shade, Goldilocks. I mean, she had an incredible career in, in the American theater and is someone that I think we don't think we don't talk enough about today. So just want to give a shout out to Agnes DeMille. Now that brings us to our number four, which I know you agree with me on. Um, And I think everybody agrees with me when I say that number four is Turkey Lurkey Time from 1968's Promises, Promises. There's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing like it. There is nothing like it. It is, I think it's, well, I can't say it's Michael Bennett at his best because we're not done (laughs) with the list yet, but um, it is pure Bennett. It is also, we have to give a shout out to Bob Avion, uh, who is the assistant yep. choreographer on that show. I think it's also the three ladies, right? I think yeah. I think it's Donna McKechnie, it's Bayark Lee, it's Margot Sappington, and also the device of these business people dressed up, dancing these very modern dances. It's on YouTube. You can see it. I'm sure anybody listening has seen it before. It's really a revelation. It's it, it. I don't think anybody had seen, not unlike the Dream Ballet in Oklahoma, lot, not unlike a lot of what we're talking about, Turkey Lurkey Time was a game changer. Nobody had ever seen anything quite like it before. It's Turkey Lurkey Time. Tom Turkey ran away, but he just came home. It's Turkey Lurkey Time. He's really home to stay. Never want to roam. Well, I think Promises Promises in a lot of ways is sort of an unheralded game changer for I agree. musical theater. Um, you know, I think of Turkey Lurkey Time as Michael Bennett's Steam Heat, 
Correct. Right. This was this was the song. This was the dance that established him as a force in the American musical theater. He was 25 years old. He had been in four Broadway shows already, and this was actually his third show as a choreographer. But the first two, you wouldn't know. Henry Sweet Henry and A Joyful Noise, two big flops in the prior two seasons. And uh, they tell the story, uh, Neil, Neil Simon tells the story of, of this show being out of town in Boston, and the end of Act One was not working. It was, you know, it was them at this party, at this, this Christmas party, and My- Michael Bennett had, you know, some some secretaries on a on a on a desk, you know, doing a dance and it was not landing. And, uh, the way Neil Simon tells it is, uh, you know, they were in a room in Boston and Michael was like a football player, you know, pleading, give me a chance, coach, give me a chance. Let me play, let me play. And so, uh, the director, Robert Moore, you know, said, okay, I will give you one more, one more chance to fix the end of act one. And so he, uh, Michael Bennett and Bob, uh, went back to their hotel room and over the course of a night, using only the mirror on the back of the door to the bathroom uh, in their hotel suite, uh, choreographed this entire number and then presented it the next day. They learned it, they put it in the show and it stopped the show and it proceeded to stop the show every single time it's, it was ever done. Right. It marks the arrival of of this choreographer on Broadway. And there's nothing more thrilling than, m- much like with Steam Heat, seeing someone finally put their stamp on, on, on the dance world and emerge as a creative force. And that's what this number does. And I love that you mentioned you know, how the, 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 the movement is very modern. And so was the score, right? So it's Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Uh, you know, were coming to Broadway to write the show. It was the only show they would ever, they ended up writing. But at the time it was seen as sort of like, a, oh, okay, we're bringing pop music to Broadway. That hadn't really been done before. This is the same season um, as Hair, right? So Hair, you know, d- did it in a different way with rock. But to have those two shows, you know, emerge on Broadway in the same season marked a real turning point for a musical theater. We did chat briefly with Donna McKechnie about it, specifically what kind of PT she needed, yeah. um, <laughs> which she said was extensive. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you don't know. And uh, I will also say there's a terrific movie called Camp, which I'm assuming yes. many people have seen, <laughs> where they recreate yeah. that number quite faithfully. I mean, really, it's uh, it's 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 quite good. If I could just you know, throw some love at Donna McKechnie for a minute here. You know, this was also a big deal for her and her career. And, you know, she obviously was amused at Michael's and her performance in particular, I know it's the three of them, but her in particular, and she's obviously spotlighted. It's unlike anything you'll ever see. And, and you have ever seen since, um, particularly there's a moment at the end towards the end of the piece where you know there's that that kicking cross weave that they do right um where they come from two different sides and they're kicking and they're moving and they cross each other it's unbelievable it's mind-blowing and you think okay that's it right this this number has peaked well the audience is applauding already right you know and then from there 
it the the number proceeds to outdo itself again. And the moment that gets me every single time is you know when they say uh, a snowy blurry Christmas, uh, a mistletoey Christmas, uh, uh, you know whatever you right and the the number starts getting faster and louder and higher and she swings her arm. They do this arm swing move that shows up in the music in the mirror um, and was sort of a signature Donna McKechnie move as, you know, choreographed by Michael Bennett. And to see not just her do it, but everyone do it on stage at the same time, it's, it's one of those moments where the music, the movement, and the emotion behind it all just becomes one. Moving on to number three. Yes. We are visited again by Bob Fosse with the Rich Man's Frug uh, from Sweet Charity. Now, this was another one that got a little bit of controversy. Everybody's got a favorite number from Charity. Yeah. I'm I'm always shocked when it isn't Rich Man's Frug. I heard a lot of people, a lot of love for There's Gotta Be Something Better Than This. A lot of love yeah. for I'm a Brass Band, which is a number that uh, Gwen Verdon didn't even like to perform. And and then, of course, Big Spender, which is, you know, a, which if I were to tie this number, I would tie it with Big Spender. But I didn't. I let it stand on its own. And for a very good reason, I think it's one of the great, great, great numbers of all time. And by that, I mean production number, of course, just as a reminder. Um, <laughs> it's split into three. So the first part is the aloof. The second part is the heavyweight, which ends with them all on the floor. That's ballsy to put every single dancer on the floor and then make them get up for part three, the big finish. I do also have to say that um, there are three very notable people in that original company dancing the Rich Man's Frug. Catherine Doby, who would go on to be Bob's assistant for for a number of years. Gene Foote, uh, who went on to work with Bob uh, again and again. And then, of course, show favorite, Leroy Reams. <laughs> no, it's incredible. I mean, there are so many people over the years who've been connected with Sweet Charity. It's sort of like the glue yes. um, uh, that holds together the American musical theater. Um, no, but I agree with you. I think the Richmond's Frug is is absolutely my favorite piece from from Sweet Charity. It is the showstopper. It's one of, you know, it's sort of peak Bob Fosse, right? You know, it's a six minute, three movement ballet that in a way is somewhat similar to Who's Got the Pain or Steam Heat in that it's sort of unattached to the plot. You know, it, it's sort of right. its own thing that lives, you know, it, it, it works completely untethered from Sweet Charity, but it also works, you know, in the middle of Act One of, of Sweet Charity. And what's so genius about it, and it's a thing that I think Bob Fosse doesn't get enough credit for. I mean, maybe he does, but in my view, I think you can never praise the man enough. The whole piece is a satire. It's a social satire. It's commentary. Right. And, it, and it's rooted in truth. And I think as the years have gone by, the number has only become more effective, and you know the the origin of it is is quite literally uh, a club called Arthur, which was in you know in Manhattan, and it was founded by uh, Sybil Burton, I believe, shortly after her divorce from Richard. Um, and what she wanted to do was transfer Maud from London to New York, and it became one of the you know first big uh, celebrity 
clubs of of the 60s you know with with a with a modern musical influence and you know, a place where you'd go to see like Jackie O or Andy Warhol you know all these uh celebrities or icons trying to like sort of get hip with the coolest thing right and that's what the rich man's Ferg is all about right it's about this 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 group of elites trying to sort of do the latest fad, right? Uh, which is the dance, the rich man's fruit. I love that it was originally called, the working title of it was The High Society Slop, which is, I think they landed on a better title uh, in the end. But the whole thing works so effectively and stands the test of time because it is a commentary. Um, and it's, it's, you see the development of Bob Fosse, the same notion is behind the rich kid's rag in Little Me, 1962. Right. And right. he took that same idea and he refined it and he created the rich man's frug, which again, you have to shout out Ralph Burns, the orchestrator right. um, and the dance arranger, Fred Werner, who had been the dance arranger for little me. Um, so he was working with his people and Cy Coleman, who wrote the piece. It's one of the coolest pieces of music ever written ever. Like I, I regardless of musical theater, regardless of genre, it's just so cool. And it's Bob Fosse peak. Cool. <laughs> interesting that you, you note the music because something that I hadn't really clocked in a long time. Now, the entire thing is on film. It was, it, it was shot exactly as it was done in the theater uh, uh, yes. for the, for the, for the motion picture, it was also captured in uh, Fosse. I, I I would recommend that you watch it, the film version. I think that's truly the because yeah. it's also directed by Bob. But what I'm trying to say is that I listened to that music far more than I actually watched the dance. And I had forgotten because I hadn't actually seen the full three parts in such a long time that I had forgotten because I'm so used to listening just to the, to the music because I think it's such brilliant music that I had yeah. actually forgotten about the two together, right? Like I, I think of the dance and the music almost separately because of how I, how I, how I witnessed the, the, or have yeah. the experience. So it's also incomplete on the original cast album. Yes. They didn't record the full, the full sequence, that, which is a real, a real loss. It is tragic. I, I actually <laughs> have a version. I have a studio uh, recording of it um, from, oh, uh, I think yeah. from London from the nineties. Uh, I might not yeah. be anyway. And that's what I, that's the, that's what I listen to um, yeah. because it's, a, well, speaking of that music, I mean that the, the, the middle movement, the heavyweight, right. For me, is is just sort of the essence of Bob Fosse because you know that he invented those rhythms, right? That that the that the movement and the music were created in tandem. And of course, Ralph Burns, you know, was sort of a musical muse of Bob's. Um, so they, you know, they sort of had a mind meld there. But if you listen 
to the percussion, to the rhythm uh, of that section, it is it is exactly the same style that you witness in later pieces, uh, most notably from the edge, from dancing. Right. It's that it's that same thing, but it it's also in steam heat. The part where they stop and they clap and they walk across that stage, there's no accompaniment. It's the rhythm. And, you know, Bob was basically a percussionist who danced. Right. right. Um, and 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 that that heavyweight section is such an expression of that. And it's uh, you know, it's hard to top. It's 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 a showstopper. Well, now we're at number two. We're almost we're almost to the top of my list. Number two, Yay. which in a way could be my number one, but I'll explain that oh. when we get to my number one. Is okay, okay. we'll take a glass from Grand Hotel. Two glasses of champagne. I'd like your most highly regarded kind. It's the Mui something. I want to drink a toast with my friend here, my wonderful loving friend who's helped me so much. You will take a glass with me, won't you, Baron? Of course. Tommy Toon, director and choreographer, yet again. It's really, I think, one of the best showstoppers of all showstoppers. Performed by originally David Carroll. What most people are familiar with is Brent Barrett and Michael Jeter and the full company doing it on the Tony Awards. It's a really spectacular capture. So uh, if you haven't seen it, please do watch it. Um, Because that number is really like i i don't even think i appreciated it fully when i saw it originally i saw i saw grand hotel um I, until i was a little bit older because it's so simple again it's this thing of this build this slow build this repetition and you know tommy tune had trouble building this number in fact it, uh, originally it was meant to be a big tap number and it wasn't working and it didn't feel right and tommy tune went to visit his ailing mother and and he was talking about the show and what was working and what wasn't working and they started talking about this number and she said well it should be a charleston and it was like a light went off and then that's the number that we now know we'll take a glass together in celebration of our meeting in celebration of our being face to face (laughs) friendly civilized Members of the race, I'll bring to you. I love that. You know, it's always interesting to me how numbers are formed and where people get inspiration from and, and all of that. But this number, what I was trying to say is again, it's this slow build. And by the time they take away the the poll, right? And the whole company comes together. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, watch the video. It's breathtaking. And it's all so simple. And it's just these repetitive steps over and over again. And then Michael Jeter being a genius. Oh yeah, I mean there's nothing to top that that Tony Award performance. Um, you know, you never forget the first time you saw it because <laughs> you immediately watched it again and then you watched it again and then you watched it again. What's so fascinating to me about this number in particular and is such a common theme across all of these, which is, you know, that it was really hard to get to the end result. Right. Uh, 
So many of these songs were, you know, created out of town or as a last minute thing or a replacement or, you know, it just goes to show. And maybe it's just, you know, the truth is that musical theater is hard. It's really right. hard to get it done right. So behind every right story is a really, you know, is a background of, of how people struggle to get there. But this show in particular, Grand Hotel, you know, is a real classic story, one of the last great classic stories of the out of town save, right? So the show was up in Boston. And, you know, the songs were by Robert Wright and George Forrest, who had written Song of Norway and Kismet. You know, they were in their 80s at this point. Um, you know, the first draft of the show was written in the 50s, 1958. Um, the idea was resurrected and it's Tommy Toon, the genius, the genius Tommy Toon, who picking up on sort of what had been done with rock musicals, uh, sort of Evita and Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, and, and picking up on the notion of continual music, continual movement, continual action. He wanted to create that, but in an old-fashioned musical theater form, right? Um, but there's nothing about Grand Hotel that's old-fashioned, of course. It's, you know, the most modern thing on the planet, but it uses the conventions and the style of classic musical theater, but what he had done is he had created the show so that it never stopped. It never, you know, there was no breath in the show. There was there were no moments for applause. It was just one seamless thing from start to finish. And he had gone a little too far in that. And he called uh, Maury Yeston up to Boston um, to help fix the show, along with Peter Stone, the book writer. And Maury's first uh, uh, diagnosis was, well, you need to let the audience applaud at some point because you're not allowing the piece to breathe. But what he also picked up on were moments in the show where the continual action wasn't allowing for a show-stopping moment. And We'll Take a Glass is a classic example of that. So the song originally faded out into the next song. There was no big finish to it. And what Maury did is he took an existing song by Robert Wright and George Forrest, and he just rewrote it to make the two counter melodies at the end and to give it that final big oomph, which of course is the moment where the pole comes away and Michael Jeter does the high kicks with Brent Barrett and the Tonys and David Carroll originally. And the composer, right? Or the, uh, I guess, arranger, you could say in this instance, Maury Yeston is the one who created the show-stopping moment that then Tommy Toon could choreograph. And then of course, these incredible performers could perform. So again, it's that collaboration. It's that synthesis of all these different elements of musical theater coming together that make this the number two showstopper and for a lot of people probably the number one yes well i did allude to the fact that it technically <laughs> could be my number one um yeah, yeah. you know before we get to number one I, I the one thing i love about is since you gave such a beautiful history of grand hotel and and how the show was formed one thing that i love about that process is that they did a reading at the hotel diplomat which was a very dilapidated hotel in on 43rd street i think in times square and you know they had all these fancy investors and everybody come and they worked for <laughs> you know a period of time i don't know if it was a week or or what it was in the ballroom at the diplomat which was really seedy new york in the 80s was, you know, not much better than New York in the 70s. And what I love about this is that the the ballroom had four columns in it and they were obviously structural and nothing could be done about it and at first everyone was sort of like what are you how are we going to do this? This is crazy. And Tommy ended up work not only working around it but incorporating those four columns into the show and that would later become part of Tony Walton's set which again is going to what you you know just like I love I love that that like here was this problem and they ended up putting not only putting it into the show but you know making it work in 
I love that. But the one, the one last thing I will say about we'll take a glass is, of course, the song is taking place at a bar and they're they're literally taking a glass together. They're sharing a drink. And I'll never forget realizing the first time I saw it that it was all pantomime. Right. It is so well executed. It is so geniusly performed and directed and staged that you see the glass in their hands right. and it's not right. there. It's not there. Yeah. And that is, that's a showstopper in and of itself. listening this far you probably figured it out at number one the music in the mirror from a chorus line michael bennett choreographer I, I, you know the reason i said that it really isn't number one was really just me being funny because it's its own thing it doesn't it defies categorization <laughs> it defies it is i think the single greatest moment in musical theater Wow, bold, bold. Yeah, I'm going to go there. It's such a perfect number, the way it starts with her telling her story, with her, you know, you finally learn what happened between Cassie and Zach, which you've been, it's, which has been hinted at, you know, throughout the evening, you finally get the story, you have that moment of like, ah, and then you hear in a spotlight, one person talk about how hard their life has been. And how, uh, you know, all of the disappointments, that classic thing of everybody saying you're wonderful and you're great and you don't think you live up or, or, or your career hasn't lived up or whatever it is, themes that every single human being, whether you're a dancer or a theater person or not, every person can relate to that. And suddenly in that moment in a chorus line, that's, I think, why a chorus line is so universally beloved, because everybody understands what Cassie's going through on some level. And then there's this explosive dance that was tailor-made you know, <laughs> for the former Mrs. Michael Bennett, Donna McKechnie. And you alluded to this earlier when we spoke with Donna McKechnie specifically about the creation of a chorus line and this number, she said how hard it was. Right. And, and, and I think that's never been truer than this, this particular moment. And it's stunning. It's, it's, it's singular. It's, it's, it's riveting from start to finish. Speaking of, of how hard it was to create, which again, you know, is a real theme of all of these, it's it, it's amazing. There's a lot of video online. Um, you can watch a really grainy video from 1975, black and white. I think, it, right? Yeah, where you can kind of make out the figure. I mean, you, 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 yeah. you, you can see it, but it's you kind of have to use your imagination a little. But to watch the evolution of her as a performer, doing the same steps from 1975 to 1983 in the big gala to 1986 when she returns to a chorus line. And when we talked to her, she said that getting to do it again, she was better. 
because she was older and she was more relaxed. And and it totally shows in right. the performance. I mean, it was always incredible. Of course, she won the Tony Award. She stopped the show every night at the Schubert Theater. But um, it's it's amazing to see the evolution of a performer. We're able to do that because of these uh, these videos that you can find online. But to the to the creation of the of the song itself and and the dance, you know, of course, you know, tailor made for Michael Bennett's muse in Donna McKechnie. It's kind of fascinating. A lot of the other Cassies in you know oral history have talked about how the show, how, how the the song was really choreographed for for Donna, but it was really choreographed for Michael. Right, and that there no one was ever better at doing it than Michael Bennett. Right. And the reason that it worked so well on Donna McKechnie's body is because they danced the same way and they physically were this had the same build, right? I mean, and and Ryan King talked about how hard it was to step into it. I mean, you know, how hard, but you know, the challenge of stepping into that dance was that uh, you know, Michael choreographed very low to the ground. It's very masculine and and a lot of the work comes in the torso and the arms. Um, and and ranking, of course, is just all legs. So she had to she had to tweak the dance, and Michael worked with her on it. You know, she said she quoted him as saying, "You know, this is the foundation. You must stay within the sphere, but within the sphere, you have to be yourself, and you have to find your own way." So, and he worked with subsequent Cassies to tweak the dance to fit their personality, but more importantly, to fit their bodies because it was so tailor made for Donna, and by extension, Michael. <laughs> I'm just thinking of all of the Cassies. I'm thinking of Wanda Riker and Vicki Frederick. (laughs) And then I was thinking that, you know, I think of Vicki Frederick as a Fosse dancer, right? And obviously Anne Ranking is, you know, is the Fosse dancer second to Gwen, right? Like, so um, it's interesting to Wanda Riker was Gower's girl with Mm -hmm. uh, 42nd Mm -hmm. Street. And so it's so fascinating to hear you say this, you know, about how uh, there was a sphere and how it was tailor made, but within the sphere, you have to make it your own because I think that might be part of what people get right about music in the mirror and what they get wrong about music in the mirror, right? Mm, you have to make yeah. it your own. You have to within that sphere. And I just, I hadn't really thought about it that way before. So thank you for bringing that yeah. to me. Well, he was such a genius. And again, the un, unheralded uh, uh, hero of the piece, I think is actually, I mean, <laughs> taking for granted that the choreography is, you know, and the performance is stellar, right? We're setting that aside if you, with one can, um, is that that dance is set to a piece of music, right? Right. And the song obviously by Marvin Hamlish and Ed Kleban is the song. Um, but the dance break is, is not their work. It's actually the work of Harold Wheeler, Right. who had been the dance arranger for Promises, Promises and Coco with, uh, with Michael Bennett. And in, in later years, um, they sort of had a bit of a falling out. And that's the, say the, that same season or the season prior, Harold, Harold Wheeler had done The Wiz. Um, and they were not on speaking terms. And Bobby Thomas, who was the music coordinator, knew they were struggling with this number. They, they couldn't get the dance break right. He knew that Harold Wheeler could solve it. So he tricked Michael Bennett and Harold Wheeler into meeting up, he literally invited them to the same bar, one at two, one at 2.15. And Michael strolled in and Harold realized he'd been set up. And then they did an all-night session um, in, in, in Michael's apartment with Bobby Thomas, uh, the music arranger, Bob Avian, da- uh, Donna McKechnie was there, Marvin Hamlish was there, Harold Wheeler, and Fran Liebergall, the original pianist. And together, this group sat 
and and created the dance together, the dance music together with the dancer in the room and the choreographer in the room. So it all came together at the same time. And Harold Wheeler's uh, light bulb moment was, in order for us to have the big finish, we have to step away from the song. And that created the slow portion of the, of the dance, which is the middle piece. And if you listen to it, that middle section is a completely different song. And it's a song that Marvin Hamlisch didn't write, that Harold Wheeler wrote. And in stepping away from the song, you create a new moment. It's its own fantasia. It's this own dream sequence, to use that word, where she gets lost in what happens, those mirrors come down. And what's the genius, of course, in the choreography is that she's playing to the mirrors. She's looking at herself in the mirror. She's not playing to the audience. And what happens at the end of the song is she realizes that she's been performing for Zach. When Anne Reinking did it, she ended the, the final pose not looking up, but looking out at Zach, realizing she'd been caught in this moment of, of her own dance, which is something any dancer, any human can relate to as you get swept up in the movement, in the moment, and then you get drawn back and you realize, oh no, someone's watching me. I think there's an interesting theme that we've unraveled or or discussed today, which is that it's not just the choreographer, it's not just the dancers, it's not just one person, it's everybody um, involved from the musical director on down. Um, the, the lighting, the lighting, the lighting, and the music in the mirror is incredible. Well, it, it, in all of these numbers, I mean, you know, that's yeah, that's that's yeah. that's that's one of the reasons that we spoke to Natasha Katz very right. early on is because uh, lighting is, I think, something that nobody ever thinks about. And I, it, I encourage you; it's one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done, and I encourage you to listen to it. But yes, it's all of these things together make these great moments. And so much of the invisible stuff is overlooked. The dance arrangements, the vocal arrangements, the orchestrations, uh, the lighting. Even though you see the lighting, you don't often perceive that you're seeing the lighting, right? You take for granted that things are lit the way they are or that you can see anything um, because it's just happening. Uh, <laughs> but when you step back from it, it's all those elements. You're absolutely right. Uh, combining to create a showstopper. 
And this has been my list of my top 10 ah. showstoppers. It was really more like 15, but that's okay. That's, well, that's what we no. do. I encourage no. anybody listening, if you have any arguments or you, or you think we missed something, I'd love you to tweet at us. Uh, send me a direct yes, message. Uh, be we very, love engagement. Well, yeah, I'd be very curious um, now that I've do, now that we've done this to to hear what you think and uh, what we what we got right and what maybe we didn't uh, include. Not that that's right or wrong. These are all personal. <laughs> this is just my list. I'm not saying it's it's just what I think. Anyway, that's our show, and thank you for listening. Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. As we settle into the Biden-Harris administration, now is a great time to visit Social Goods, an online store that offers a curated slate of statement-making merchandise that gives back to nonprofits tackling today's most pressing issues. Listeners of The Fabulous Simplet can go to social-goods.com and use the code FAB15, F-A-B-15, at checkout to receive 15% off your first purchase. That's Social Goods, where every transaction comes with real action. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Check out our archive of episodes and be sure to tune in next time. It's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.